In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our Gen Con online seminar coverage. And we're back. Welcome to the first Behind the Pages panel at Gen Con Online. We are the No Direction Podcast. It's the No Direction Network's Pathfinder News Reviews and Interviews Podcast. I'm Ryan Costello. And I'm Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Parent. And in these behind the page segments, we are pleasured. No, we are sorry. <laughs> Honor. We are pleased to boy. Oh boy. First Hi, one Liz. of the weekend. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How's your Gen Con going? Oh well, it was great until like five seconds ago. <laughs> oh man. I mean, day seven of Gen Privilege. Con has been Privilege awesome is the word for I was me. looking for. Damn. <laughs> we got there. We when got I do there. That. It's all good. <laughs> we are privileged to be joined by Paizo staff for uh, a long, in-depth interview. And in this case, it is with designer Liz Liddell. Hi, Liz. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on here. We are very happy to have you on. Yeah. We haven't had you on the uh, official podcast in like six months. I think the last time it's we were talking about the a while, APG. Yeah playtest mm -hmm. yeah, now we get to talk right. about among other things the apg Ooh, yep. it's been a wild ride so you wrote this two spell casting classes we heard that I sure right? did. Mm -hmm. yep i worked on the uh, oracle and the witch um which was uh, let me tell you what a heck of a first major design project mm -hmm. <laughs> so what do you think it's like designing new spell casting classes for pathfinder second edition i mean that's got to be a key pillar of a fantasy game it sure is. I mean, that's what makes fantasy in, in I mean, it's one of the <clears throat> biggest iconic pieces of what makes a fantasy game is magic and how that works in the setting. Um, so in some ways, it's it's an enormous responsibility um, because you're, you're, you're kind of helping shape the world in a lot of ways. Um, in another way, I'm working with classes that are being updated from Pathfinder first edition. And so we have years of expectations from fans who have played these games who love these classes and they want to be able to see their first edition characters realized in second edition um and then of course there's there's the we don't want to just literally recycle the same thing over and over again and so we want to achieve goal one and goal two while meeting goal three of keeping something fresh and interesting and exciting along the way um so that's it's there's a lot of masters at work um and it makes it makes for a, a big challenge but I will also say the second edition framework as a whole makes that a little bit easier, um, just in that we have some, some foundational pillars. We've got the four traditions of magic. Um, we have a basic understanding of how spell casting, spell casting classes work. Um, and so I can, we can kind of lean on those uh, as assumptions and then look at what we want to change to make each class be a distinctive class in its own right. Now, the first edition, which had a lot of unique spells to it, uh vomit swarm being one of the first ones that comes to mind <laughs> oh, God. So when yep. you are uh crafting that class i know that there was kind of a flux about which uh which tradition the witch should even have access to oh yeah so like where does fitting in the iconic witch spells come in especially knowing that because of the traditions it means suddenly maybe wizards are going to be able to vomit swarms sure um that's a great question um and we addressed that in two different ways <clears throat> Um, one of them was that the witch spell list in first edition, although the witch was an arcane caster, they had a custom spell list like every class and their spell list was weird. Um, it was very <laughs> um, niche and utility focused in some ways and, and had a lot of really uh, unique spells that, that were really kind of corner cases. 
Um, what we have done in second edition but is, is represented that in a broad sense by letting you kind of decide which direction you want to take your witch in. And that's going to be your, your tradition choice. Are you a divine witch? Are you an occult witch? Are you an arcane witch uh, or a primal witch? And uh, that's going to let you kind of focus in which direction of that utility you want to see. But then on a second layer, we've taken kind of the other component of witches, which are their hexes. Um, and anything that was so witch that a wizard shouldn't be able to do it uh, became either a hex, uh, one of the witch's hex spells, or uh, a, a witch feat, um, so that they would stay iconic to this class and not be something that just anyone could start picking up. And we do want to remind everyone that this is absolutely a live uh, show here, and we are very much paying attention to the chat. So if you've got any questions about anything we are talking about for Liz, for uh, Ryan, for myself, or the upcoming awesomeness that is our Gen Con coverage, please put it in chat and we will try to address it as quickly as possible. Now, uh, Liz, at one point, the, uh, the, the, schedule said that we were going to be talking a lot about bestiary three but i know oh, yeah. in the last panel you just said that a lot of the bestiary three talk is going to be wait wait until saturday oh sure well i mean only just because the last panel was building an apg character so it's not a great fit for bestiary talk but if we want to talk bestiary oh bring it on this is my the book is my life right now <laughs> oh wow excellent all right well every bestiary kind of has an unofficial theme so going mm -hmm. into bestiary three what unofficial theme are we thinking um, the unofficial theme of Bestiary 3 is also kind of what we say on the tin. Um, it is the, the third and final of the three pillar bestiaries. Um, my, our hope with this book is that if you have bestiaries 1, 2, and 3, that you will have a complete suite of creatures to run basically any campaign that you would want to run. Um, that's not to say there's not room for more monsters. There will always be more room. But for anything you know, stock and core and iconic, uh, this should round out your selection and you should have it. Uh, so that means that we're adding a couple of things to the game that existed in first edition that we haven't seen yet in second edition. Uh, the two big ones that I'm very excited about being clockworks and troop Ooh. rules. Is that that humongous dragon on the cover? That's one of the oh, clockworks, yeah. clockwork right? dragon. Yep, absolutely. And actually, I love the cover of Bestiary 3 because uh, you've got this big clockwork dragon in the mm -hmm. background. Uh, and it is uh, in the foreground uh, is actually... A, a manifestation of these troop rules. You've got a skeleton troop on the front cover of the bestiary. Um, and then of course, tooth fairies, because if you've got all these skeletons walking around, you've got all of these teeth and uh, <laughs> what tooth fairy is gonna be able to resist that buffet just walking around there for the taking. Can we focus on the troop rules for a second? Because Absolutely. I think that those troops need to have some love and attention because in when they finally showed up in first edition they made a lot of my favorite types of scenes so much easier to run so why are troops awesome well troops are awesome because um there's as a <clears throat> as a game master there's only so many creatures you can run on the board at once realistically otherwise before it bogs down the game and gets ridiculous you know you've got four pcs and if you're going up against you know, an entire squadron of city guardsmen, then suddenly I'm rolling like 24 attacks, running 24 creatures each round and each PC is acting once per round. It gets very boring. Uh, and so troops are um, really functionally like swarms, but for bigger things uh, and, and, and lean on some of the swarm rules. Um, so rather than hitting each individual entity and knocking it down one by one, 24 times over, you've got one big single pool and you're just sort of carving away at it for a while. 
And there's also some interesting differences that you'll see, uh, namely that you hack down a swarm, a, a troop enough, uh, and, and it loses cohesion, people run away. Now, like, I think you really hit the nail on the head, because this isn't so much bad for second edition that runs a whole lot faster and definitely does handle multiple enemies on the field a lot more naturally than, than first edition did. Um, but I really like those, those sorts of like in the middle of a battle scenes or the, the, the party is making their big defiant stand in the dungeon and then they hear the rumble and they just see the wave of ghouls crawling on the walls, the ceiling, the floor. Oh, sure, absolutely. And that is I, so... Iconic cinema scenes about this. And and if, if you've ever tried to do it, and you literally did put those like 47 individual ghoul models on your battle mat, <laughs> uh, your players hated you by the end of the seventh mm -hmm. hour of initiative round two. Exactly, exactly. And that's the piece that troops are trying to do is, <clears throat> is, is consolidating so that you can use the second edition rules of that three action economy, one, two, three, to model a larger group of creatures acting in concert. Are we going to see any nods back to some of the first troops with like um, grenade spams or fire volleys? <laughs> um, we are trying to account for all of the things that a troop might do. Uh, so without getting into, um, details, I, to, I guess I should, I should put some context on this. We are in the middle of, uh, our work on Bestiary 3 <clears> right <throat> now. So it is literally like half developed. Um, and so there are some things that we just haven't finalized yet. Um, so that being said, we're, we're looking to make sure that, you know, if you've got a troop of spellcasters, that there's some way to model how that spellcasting is mm. going to work without making it. Uh, absurd, impossible, or useless. Mm. Yeah, also, I... Oh, sorry. Nope. I said, yeah, in uh, Wrath of the Righteous, one of my things that my players hated the most is one of the random encounters you could get were some cultists of Baphomet who had fly and Ooh. fireball necklaces, and Ooh. it was on the one of the random encounter chart, and they ran into it while trying to cross a bridge over lava because oh. that was a fun of adventure. I mean, maybe that actually sounds like a fantastic set piece, but yeah. they have since dumped them the flying nuns and cursed their existence ever since because 12 fireballs at once is tough, even for mythic. That, yes, that is a challenge, and so that's that's a good example of the absurd that we're trying to make sure um, we get a, a, a little better of a handle on. So now you also mentioned that there's going to be a lot of clockwork in Bestiary 3. And my first thought was, I must have misheard. She must mean that they're expanding clockwork. But I just went on the archive Nethys to see how much clockwork is in 2E. Virtually nothing. We haven't done it yet. Um, we've been working on the clockwork rules over the last eight months or so. And I think Agents of Edgewatch has a few clockworks coming out in it sort of concurrently. Um, but the uh, the full clockwork rules and the sort of um, fundamental chunks of clockworks that are going to uh, provide build the, the foundation for other clockwork creatures in the future, that's going to be in this book. So why did you hold off on clockwork? They're complicated. <laughs> oh, <laughs> darn it. Uh, um, I mean, the, the reality of it is that we have to figure out how to do something that's construct-like and how do we make it have those uh, pieces of clockworks, um, like the winding abilities and the sort of autonomy and, and um, reactive nature in a way that works with the second edition rules framework. Uh, and uh, when Bestiary 2 was in the works, we just didn't have, uh, it wasn't quite the, the right time and place to, uh, to make that happen. Windspeaker, Windspeaker is asking clockwork PCs, question mark? 
that is not something that is on my radar, um, but I, uh, I, I know that we are talking about um, ways to make PCs that are a little outside the box. I believe the usual standard answer for this sort of question is if it's something you're excited about and you think other fans might be excited about, the perfect place to post that is the Pazo forums. It is a great place to post things. Um, and if uh, a lot of people are excited about ideas, um, we, we do our best to meet those needs. We want to give you the tools you want to play your games. Kitsune Warlock is asking, is there anything to do with Pan Meijong or Soulbound Clockworks? Not in this book, um, which kind of comes back to the fact that this is kind of a foundational book mm -hmm. of sort of your, your basic <clears throat> concept. So we've got Clockworks in place, and we actually had Soulbound dolls in uh, the first bestiary. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is laying the groundwork so that when that concept comes up, um, for example, in a Lost Omens book or in an adventure path, they have the tools to make that creature at the time and place that's right for that. And also... Um... With these three bestiaries, since you mentioned the first one and now getting Clockworks, will this provide a lot of tools for people who are, say, using the GMG rules to, like, if they want Soulbound Clockworks to build them using the Monster Creation Kits? I think you could probably, uh, well, we, what we don't have, I guess, to, mm. to uh, you know, disappoint and, and uh, you know, ruin everyone's dreams is we don't have templates that say here's how you would do x y or z but i think um the rules in the game mastery guide will give you the um the toolbox um for lack of a better word to take the component pieces from both of those books and see how they'll fit together should uh, try you i believe is how this uh, user's name would be pronounced wants to know about clockwork familiars Ooh, ooh. um so uh it it may or may not be clear yet that um, be, uh, familiars have moved from uh, the bestiary entries to um, the player rules books because they're they're player rules, right? They're not a GM creature. Um, oh, sorry, I have a I have a visitor here. Um, and so we have in the advanced players guide we actually just introduced for the first time specific familiars. Oh, uh, yeah. So if you have been excited about your imp familiar, we've got rules for you. Um, and so that opens up a huge range of different types of familiars. So we don't have a clockwork familiar yet, but we have the, the, the rules space to make one. I suspect it's only a matter of time. People in Question. chat are talking about, you stock, start talking about familiars, your cat walks in. Of course. She's, she's one of my two. I'm super uh, happy Nico Rems the... has a question. It's a broad bestiary through questions. It's just dragons? Yes. Uh, actually, I'm very excited about the dragons in Bestiary Ooh. 3. Um, Ooh, okay. so this is going to touch on another sort of thing we're, we're doing with Bestiary 3, um, which is uh, working to incorporate a lot of real-world folklore so that mm -hmm. we can tell um, stories that speak to different parts of the world. Um, and so as part of that, we're pulling um, on African folklore, uh, Filipino creatures. Um, we've got a Hawaiian tradition that we're representing in the book, um, some Aboriginal Australian monsters. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of those is when we looked at the dragons for Bestiary 3 and said, what dragons do we need? We said, okay, Imperial dragons are the ones that we're gonna be doing next. Uh, and so we went kind of back to the source mythology behind sort of the um, Eastern Asian dragon uh, mythology and lore and we really dug into that to figure out how to represent those real world aspects um, in a way that's going to be familiar and engaging to people playing Pathfinder um, and we had a really fantastic uh, pair of freelancers working on them uh, who did really really incredible work to bring that mythology to life in a way that lines up with Pathfinder and also that real world lore 
So I'm very excited about them. And I think, uh, I think our fans are going to find them to be uh, a really interesting and evocative uh, set of dragons that are still familiar. So uh, for people who might not be familiar with the Imperial Dragons, can you sort of like describe what really is the appeal or makes or makes them stand out from our, our bread and brother chromatic and metallics? Sure. So the Imperial Dragons um, are a group of wingless dragons, by and large, um, that are, are more of the um, <clears throat> Eastern dragon shape um, that you that that we see in, in real world artwork um, instead of being based on the. Um, sort of metallic and chromatic color and element schemes, they're based on a series of five um, sort of Eastern elements. Um, so we have sky, water, wood, uh, sovereign, and underworld um, as the five types of dragons. And each of them uh, tie into certain elements, but not in the way that Western mythology typically associates them and not with the, the same ties that um, chromatic dragons have. They're also the dragons that are most engaged with people on Galarian um, and through the setting. So they're, um, I mean, we, we talk about the dragon empires of Tianxia um, where named after dragons, some of them are ruled by dragons. It is not necessarily an everyday occurrence that you'll run into a dragon in humanoid form, but way more common there than it is anywhere else in the world. Pulgara in chat uh, is complimenting you on the choice of Pacific Islander folklore. They oh, say very you. cool. They love it. Uh, do you feel like going into a little bit of that? What are some of the specific legends and lore that you were pulling from? Uh, I, I th yeah, I think I've got a point I can do that. Um, one of the ones that I'm most excited about is the uh, Hawaiian legend of the Night Marchers. Um, one of the writers that we brought mm. into uh, Dust Jerry 3 is, uh, is, is Hawaiian. Um, and so this is one of the sort of stories that he grew up with of these sort of ghostly warriors who come walking along, um, along certain paved paths set out for them across the lava fields and uh, cooled lava, not like hot lava. <laughs> um, and uh, if you are related to any of those spectral figures, if you're the descendant of one of them, uh, they won't harm you. Otherwise, you need to take certain precautions to avoid being uh, to get out of their way or avoid offending them. Um, and it's just one of those things that can fill some interesting niches and stories um, that, that we don't see in Western folklore as much and doesn't have a, a, an existing counterpart in sort of the standard stock fantasy that we see in the world. And so um, by, by providing these kinds of creatures, um, we're saying, hey, look, you, you've got this, this cultural background and you've got these stories and there's a way that you can see them in this game. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of the first edition bestiaries were when you all were bringing in these South American and Slavic mythologies and Asian mythologies that we weren't super familiar with. And I guess towards the end, a lot of African mythology was starting to, to show up, too. Uh, are you doing more like you just said, where you're bringing in uh, creators and consultants with connections to those cultures while you're creating these new content? Yes, absolutely. Um, Bestiary 3 has, I think, the longest credits list of any bestiary and maybe any second edition product. Um, we had something <laughs> like 46 authors involved in it. Uh, because it was very important to me as we were putting this creature list together of, of the roster of creatures that were going to show up in this bestiary that we have people uh, writing them from places of experience um, with that source source material. Um, some of them on an academic level who've studied this um, through through college or through other means, but a lot of them are just people who've grown up with these stories and and can speak to them on a personal level. Now, what this is the is process helpful. for narrowing down that monster list then? Because is it like 
this is a monster we're vaguely aware of. Let's see if we can find somebody from the culture who can flesh it out personally. Or do you start with a culture that has been underrepresented and then try and find monsters to fill into the book? Both of those. Um, and third, we have uh, a, a list of what we know we need for the setting um, in terms of like, oh, uh, you know, humanoid creatures are underrepresented or we have too many plants. Um, so <laughs> seeing where we've got gaps and where we need to fill things in. And so then sort of it's, it's, a, it's a big Tetris game of like, where do we have a need? Where are there, um, you know, real world things we could fit into that? Or where, where, does, where does the mythology speak to? Um, and, and what things have we done in first edition that we want to bring forward? So it's a, it's a very large balancing act of, of many, many different scales. Now we're coming up on the, uh, the year anniversary of Pathfinder second edition. How has, now that you're doing the third bestiary and you're rounding mm -hmm. out what you're calling the core group of the bestiaries, how has, um, how do you think that it, a good monster or foe for second edition is made and what qualities it has and how has that evolved since the game launched and, and what have you learned since launch in that regard? Oh, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think the thing that we try to do the most with monsters in second edition is um, figure out what the core of that monster is, of what that creature is, and find a way to convey that through abilities that the players will see. Um, and, and, and I think that last piece that the players are going to see is uh, a really important part that we've learned and, and have really started focusing on a lot. Um, because it's all, it's all great if, you know, this, this thing has a ability that makes all of its weapons flaming. But if that's not something the PCs are going to see or engage with, I, that's actually not a great adventure example. Something that gives it better saving throws, right? Okay, great. It's got better saving throws. It's got a plus one status bonus to all saves against magic. And the players are never going to know. And so it hardly even matters. Um, but if you have an ability where it brings up this shield of force around itself to deflect oncoming spells, the players are going to see that because they're going to throw a fireball and it's going to like peel around this foe and they're going to be like, whoa. Um, and that is the kind of experience that we really want to see at the table where the, the, the creatures are being um, experienced, not just through the words and descriptions, but in terms of, the, the actions they're taking and the abilities that they're using. I got a couple of questions from chat here, but both people that I was about to read then had a follow-up question that goes along with it. So just oh, a second my. while I do my copy and pasting. Agni Avis wants to know if any chance you are hiring a freelancer with knowledge in Indian from India, mythology and legends, they need more representation of the Vudranian books. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, yes, um, I, <laughs> there are a couple of ways to get um, on our radar for that. Um, we are always looking for new freelancers, um, especially from backgrounds that don't see sufficient representation in fantasy games. Um, so uh, you can reach out to me at Liz May Tweet on Twitter, or you can send me an email at Liz Liddell, sorry, Liz.Liddell at Paizo.com. Um, and uh, let me know what work you've done and we'll get you in touch with the right people to see about, um, you know, finding a, a project that's a good fit. We're, we're, we're really looking to help raise up new voices and, uh, and, and uh, new groups of people. Can I just say, I've always appreciated your Twitter handle. I don't know <laughs> if it's a tweet. threat. I may or... not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you better be here if she does tweet though. <laughs> uh, she uh, sorry. She wants to know, uh, well, first of all, they want to say that they want to see more sapient slimes in the future. Yes. What are the Nexian ooze tenders even tending to? 
Oh, that's a great question. Uh, that's that is the kind of question that we'll probably end up addressing in a Lost Omens book somewhere. Um, you know, if, if there were an Impossible Kingdoms book, that's that's exactly the kind of lore that we would dig into. Now, I know that there was like at the very end of uh, of Pathfinder uh, first edition, uh, there was these uh, Elysium slimes uh, that were uh, sentient and tried to do good and couldn't so the angels had to spend a lot of time saving them will we see oh, no. any return of these little adorable precious babies uh i would say um that you should put something about that on the message boards on people's <laughs> radar <laughs> at paizo.com uh, but uh, also, I'm going to point back to the Advanced Players Guide. Um, I had mentioned earlier that we have specific mm -hmm. familiars, and one of the specific familiars that we have made available is a spell slime. Yes. Uh, so you can have an ooze familiar uh, for your wizard or witch or sorcerer. I, I really love the spell slime. I am I like also that it hints that you might not have known you had a spell slime, and then suddenly your, your, your raven just goops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since you've gone back to the APG, there were a couple of APG questions from earlier that I uh, didn't get a chance to get to. Koro7600, what was the biggest challenge in designing the witch? The witch had a really interesting challenge that I did not foresee, which is that people had incredibly strong opinions about what traditions the witches should have access to, and none of them agreed. <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were all over the board. Um, our original vision for the witch was actually that there would not be divine witches, um, mm -hmm. that the oracle had the divine spellcasting kind of covered, and if you're a witch working with a patron to get divine power, that you're basically kind of a cleric. Um, and through the playtest process last year, um, we had a lot of players who put together character concepts and pointed to things from first edition and said, look, in second edition concepts, these would be divine witches. And they were right. Um, and, and so we opened it up to all four traditions, but it, there were, I had to close many message boards threads that got out of hand about it. Um, and we had some pretty heated conversations in the office um, about which, which direction that was going to go. And it was not what I expected to be the most challenging part of designing that class. Oh, sorry. Uh, Chewy in chat says they were going to name their spell slime Jar Jar Binks. Yep. It seems not, not inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> also about the APG, Veyron303 wants to know, is the Vigilante supposed to be a level two archetype because it seems strange to suddenly have two identities at first level? I think this was mentioned in a panel by Mark Seifter, right? Uh, that is a great question. Uh, Mark does a lot of things that I can't keep track of. I, I'm pretty sure he is a superhero. All right. I believe it was confirmed that that was a mistake and that there might be some errata there, but um, I might be misremembering there was a lot going on. Yeah, um, so I guess I'll, this is behind the pages. I can talk a little bit about the sausage. Um, the Vigilante, there's a um, suggestion in the core rulebook that you might be able to take an archetype at first level, even though you don't have the feet for it yet, by sort of spending your feet, committing your feet in advance. Um, and that is one of the ideas that we discussed for the Vigilante. And I don't know off the top of my head if we decided not to do that or if we decided to do that and then didn't implement it properly. So um, that's when we'll have to go do some homework and, and um, track down some details and probably go talk to Mark. So this is so definitely a core good... rule look. I know it's, it's written as an optional rule in the game mastery guide, which I really enjoy the idea of giving archetypes at first level. Uh, so giving that's a, is yet another option at the game okay. mastery guide. Um, so the core rule book sort of hints that like, Hey, this is a thing that might happen someday. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, uh, I believe like last night when we were doing the uh, big breakdown of the APG, Ryan was thinking of a whole party that gets vigilante for free and that, how oh, that would brilliant. change the game. It's absolutely brilliant. <clears throat> if you're going to play Curse of the Crimson Throne, that is absolutely the way to do it. Oh, well, you could also like, you can give your entire party martial arts and you could be the Ninja Turtle suddenly by oh, having yeah, an alchemist course, martial yeah. artist <laughs> and a, a champion martial artist. I don't know what Michelangelo would be. Just a martial artist. <laughs> fighter martial oh, artist bard could be oh yeah performance uh comedy all right i'm happy with that uh one winged angel this isn't a question just as someone who loves oracle in pf1 play tested a lot of it in pf2 they have to say they love the changes made to the oracle from the play test well thank you very much it is always really great to hear that people think we're doing things right speaking with the oracle um it seems like the curses were definitely given a little bit of a shot in the arm with the second edition take. Um, so, so what went behind the thoughts of making the curses so much more relevant this time around? There were two really big things that we wanted to do with the curses in uh, second edition Pathfinder. Um, the Oracle is an interesting place because uh, the mythology behind the Oracle reaches back to Greek mythology, where you have uh, the Oracle of Delphi, where you have these uh, individuals who are blessed with these supernatural powers that come with a curse. And in Greek mythology, um, the Greeks were not necessarily nice people. And basically every curse they ever imagined was a real world disability. And we don't, feel that it's our place to say that a real world uh that the ways people exist in the real world are curses that's ableist and it's kind of a jerk thing for us to do and so we wanted to step away from that while still maintaining this idea of you've got this tremendous power but it's taking this toll on you and so that played really well into the other thing we wanted to do with the curses which was pair them with your mystery so it was a set package um so if you have um, the, if you're the Oracle of Flames, you've got all this fire power, but your curse is also very closely tied into fire and fire effects. Um, and it does a really, really cool thing for us mechanically where we know what you're up against. And so we can make an individual curse and mystery pair um, anywhere on a huge extreme. So you might have a fairly mild curse that gives you some abilities from your mystery, or you might have a curse that's real hard to deal with, but gives you bonkers awesome abilities and we can do that because we know what they're going to be paired uh, whereas in first edition where you chose them separately we kind of had to go along a baseline for each and neither could go particularly outside of the of the that that baseline because then you'd end up with really really skewed character builds now they're asking Somebody us if it. we have uh not trace once no it's uh chorus 60 uh, 7600 wants to know what our favorite oracle curses are um right uh, I know I played the Oracle in the playtest. I don't actually remember what my curse was, even though I know I uh, actually used it several times. So I've just called up the Oracle pages in my PDF here, and I'm trying to find them uh, as a refresher. For me, it's haunted. Always haunted. It's so much, like, it, even in first edition, it was so much fun uh, to mess with players who had haunted, who were always happy when you messed with them when they had, like, it was the one curse that they were just always, like, eager and hinting at me to use um and and yeah if you've got some ghost friends or some ghosts very much not your friends around that opens up a lot of uh, story potential here here <laughs> uh so while ryan is looking for yep. curses uh what else was super interesting when you were developing the oracle that uh, might not be uh, readily apparent when doing a read through 
Hmm. Let me take a look at what we were doing. Um, well, I could tell a funny story about the Oracle, which is Ooh. that uh, no one told me that we needed to have like 12 curses and 12 <laughs> mysteries. Um, and so I'm cheerfully designing through my class and, you know, like after the play test, wrapping things together, pulling things together. And, and someone at some point said, OK, where are the rest of these? And I'm like, the rest? <laughs> Uh, and so um, there was a, a lot of generation of curses that um, happened sort of, um, I, I don't want to say like rushed, but sort of unexpectedly. And so it, it, it led to some really creative ideas and a lot gave us a bigger opportunity to bring forward some of the things that people really loved in first edition. Um, so the Oracle itself, uh, what is its connect? It was very much like the divine sorcerer in first edition rules wise. But where do you think like the connection with the Oracle and divine magic, even though they're not limited to that tradition now, uh, where do you feel that the Oracle sort of fits in in that role of how it interacts is with the various magic sources of the world? Sure. So I see the Oracle as someone who has said, there's all this power out there that is generally controlled by gods um mm -hmm. sort of like generally in the outer planes and most people access that either by having that bloodline as a sorcerer or by working with a particular and usually single deity or powerful <laughs> divine figure um and and so that's sort of like the the standard way that you get those powers and i see the oracles as people saying okay well i could do that but you know, screw authority, I'm going to go over here and do it my own way. And so either they're just bypassing the deities entirely and plugging their fingers directly into the divine socket of energy, um, or they're kind of like playing the game of like, all right, so I'm going to take a little bit from this god and a little bit from this god, and a little bit from this god. Um, and in either case, either you're just getting like, you know, punched in the face because you're, you're sucking on this raw, unfiltered divine magic, and that's generating a curse or because you're trying to sort of like play the game by appealing and pulling from a whole bunch of different deities, you're also kind of like getting pulled in all these different directions with regard to anathema and it's kind of pulling you apart. Um, so it's, they're sort of, in either case, it's sort of because you're bypassing the sort of standard channels of getting divine magic, you're sort of uh, waving your right to the safety that those channels provide. So if you were working through your word count designing something other than curses, does that mean that there's just a whole bunch of Oracle feats we can look forward to in the future? Uh, there are a lot of ideas for Oracle <laughs> feats. Um, oracles are, are pretty, pretty rife for um, opportunities to continue developing. I think we're going to continue to see Oracle mysteries and curses um, and, and other Oracle abilities come uh, as, as a, a kind of a, a fun playground um, <laughs> in the years to come. Also, um, it, it was come up in chat, yeah. So oracles are not just divine casters now, not in uh, Oracles are always divine. It's the witches oh. that have split between all four traditions. My apologies for getting no worries. a little goofed. <laughs> I always forget what I do in three days later, so. <laughs> Actually, while I was just looking up which curse I wanted, I was like, oh, wait, but there's the Baba Yaga curse. Nope, that's a witch patron. <laughs> I mean, Baba I Yaga will happily curse anybody. Yeah. I sh yes, she will. <laughs> Uh, Chihui, it's it's Chewy with an extra H. I'm getting playful with how to pronounce it. Will Harrowing make a comeback? And can you hint at the future of occult classes that we should be excited about? Hmm, yeah. Um, so Harrowing is uh, is a kind of a staff favorite. We've got a couple of staffers who really love the Harrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, you should take a look at some of the Extinction Curse um, issues mm -hmm. that are coming out. Not Extinction Curse. Um, I'm sorry. Agents of Edgewatch. Um mm -hmm. That are they're coming out in the coming months, um, and because I there's uh, 
some Harrow related material happening in there. Um, but it's, it's one of these ideas that we like a lot. And so it's, you're going to see it in places that tie closely to our world. You're going to see it in adventure paths. You're going to see it in modules and you're going to see it in um, uh, the Lost Omens book line. I mean, you all made physical Harrow decks not once, but twice. But so twice, it's, it's safe yeah. to assume that you all love it. Also, the we, Harrowing we like Adventure it. is fantastic. And if you haven't played through it, either in first edition or maybe converted to second edition, I recommend you play that one. It's a fun one. We have Just a lot of fun with the Harrow. <laughs> so we got a question from Nalkara about the Magus and the Summoner. Are these oh, yeah. classes you're working on? Do you have insight into them? Uh, I, I do. Um, I've been working on them actually for the last two weeks. And... Uh, what I'm going to say about them right now is they're going to be rad and you should come tune in to the panel on Saturday where we'll be talking a lot more about that book and uh, some opportunities to, uh, to, get your, to get your fingers wet. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people were very happy when specifically the Magus was announced. The Magus I think a has lot been a of fan favorite. I think a lot of people were concerned because of how easily uh, Pathfinder First Edition made Marshall uh, casting mixes and how well they do play in second edition that maybe the Magus might not ever show up again or worse be become an archetype. And it was announced that it's a class. It is going to be a class. And, <laughs> uh, and, and that's, that is what I was doing literally yesterday was working on that class and mm -hmm. it is pretty rad. I think people are going to enjoy it. I think it's going to play really, uh, it's going to be a really fun thing to play at the table. Oh yeah. So some uh, people in chat seem surprised <laughs> about the announcement that you're alluding to. Can you remind people what book was announced? Oh, sure. Um, so that book is called Secrets of Magic, and that is the book that is going to come out exactly one year from today at Gen Con 2021. Uh, is there a reason you be, didn't go with... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, it's going to be our, our big book to look beyond the sort of core magic ideas that we've presented in the game so far and get into some really wild alternate magic systems, um, as well as building out a lot more items, spells, rituals, um, and of course, those two new classes, archetypes, backgrounds. Is there a reason you didn't go with Ultimate Magic for the title? Sure, it's a different book. Um, Ultimate okay. Magic was very much a, um, you know, we're going to continue this core rules line. Um, in, in this one, we're actually sort of breaking outside of the box. So um, core rulebook, bestiary, game master's guide, and uh, advanced player's guide are the four pillars um, of the second edition table, as it were. They're the four table legs. Um, and uh, but we don't want to tie ourselves to having to make everything fit as part of that table, nor do we want to require that every player who's playing our game have to know and learn all of this additional information. Um, and so we're, we're, we're really focusing on um, if you've got the main four, you've got the game, and then you can choose to bring in these other pieces as you see fit. And also, um, as somebody who was just prepping a lot of APG content as part of No Direction's coverage of that material, um, I very much appreciate that the APG was named the APG in, as a nod to its importance and heritage. Um, but also, I also will appreciate that not all second edition books are simultaneously going to be named the same thing as first edition books because that makes my Google experience very difficult. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and I... it, it sort of helps manage some expectations. It's, it's not Ultimate Magic. And anybody who's coming to it expecting to find second edition updates of the things we put in Ultimate Magic is going to find that it's it's a very different book. Right. Yeah, just now when you mentioned the Bestiary 3 cover, I could not find the Bestiary 3 second edition cover. All I found was oh, uh, no. first edition. Kitsune Warlock, I can answer this one. Uh, it says, will we get Secrets of Battle? 
Uh, I don't know about Secrets of Entry, Kitsune, but they did say that Secrets of Battle would not be the book after Secrets of Magic. And they then made fun with several Secrets of Battle jokes, including that it may and or may not include the Dinosaur Fort. Oh, Dinosaur <laughs> oh, Fort. Dinosaur. We're trying to figure out what to do with Dinosaur Fort. We've got plans. <laughs> My suggestion was it needs to summon Trypticon. Oh, it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent reference. Wow. That is a great reference, Pearl. <laughs> well, you've got Mecha Rules coming for Starfinder. There's no right. reason that they can't be backported into like a more fun rule. I mean, you all did have the castle that transformed into a Mega Golem, Kaiju, in, in the previous bestiary. And you all hinted that more Kaiju would be coming in some form soonish. We don't mm -hmm. know what or where, but that us Kaiju fans... I am fans, not authorized to speak on the details oh, yeah, yeah. of Kaiju at this time. <laughs> no, but many of us are Kaiju fans um, and appreciate them being used. Uh, I, it, Kaiju specifically, since we're talking about Bastiary stuff, the Kaiju and the cryptids and, and the idea that there are these monsters out there that just don't play by monster rules mm -hmm. and you really can't just expect this to be normal... Uh, has always been fun, and I look forward to you all um, being more creative than the Monster Manual 8000. <laughs> well, I, we're very excited to not be locked into that format. Um, there's there's a point at which it's sort of like, okay, we're doing this again, that um, getting out beyond that lets us really mm -hmm. do more fun things that we're more excited about, and when we're more excited, our, our fans are more excited. Now, I do have one quick Best Year 3 question. It is that... The best year three was announced. We're a year into Pathfinder two, and the best years for Pathfinder one were every other year. Um, and this is a very rapid pace for bestiaries. Yes. And these are not tiny bestiaries. I expected when they were coming out this rapid, they'd be like the Starfinder alien archives right, and those little slimmer. slim. But that's not what y'all been doing. So, nope. so, so why so fast bestiary? And are we? Do we have this to be a, a habit that to look forward to? Uh, I, for my sanity, I uh, thankfully not, <laughs> um, they, part of the reason we wanted to get the bestiaries out, um, sooner rather than later <clears throat> is because the reality is that we're working with the second edition of a game where a lot of people have favorites from first edition and we have adventures from first edition that are being updated to second edition. Um, and we want you to have the tools you need to play your game in this edition without having to put the workload of converting everything on you. And so we've kind of have, have uh, leaned hard into bestiaries to make sure that you have those tools and that they're out there so that we're not going to leave you hanging while we go play in our sandbox with other toys for a while. Uh, uh, one thing that Pazo just uh, pointed out in chat is that one thing we do want to mention uh, is that the PaizoCon, the duration of, uh, no, Paizo.com, not PaizoCon. Paizo.com, for the duration of Gen Con, they're running a promo with a discount if you use the code GenCon2020 at checkout. Um, the uh, So if you want to pick up any of the stuff we're talking about, that's a good place to do so. Absolutely. And, go, go get you some books. And we've been talking a lot about the schedule. So I'm going to pull it up real quick, everybody, to reference so that, uh, you know, we uh, can have an idea of what's coming up because there's some fantastic stuff coming up because immediately after this panel uh, is going to be the Pathfinder Adventure Overview panel. And that's when we get to talk about the adventures, uh, that's always one of my absolute favorite, favorite panels that you all do at PazoCon and Gen Con because it really is a 
a peek into the the future of the storylines and focuses of the entire game. After that, we've got Roll for Combat doing Tales from the Black Lodge at 6 o'clock. I believe Luis Loza will be guest starring on that uh, from uh, Paizo and, of course, also from No Direction. Luis, we love you. And tomorrow we're doing inside the newest playtest, Nanosites and Mechs. So make sure that you tune in tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. And that is what, 9 a.m. Uh, Paizo time? Or is that uh, noon 1 Paizo Eastern time? is going to be 10 Paizo time. 10, 10 Paizo time. 10 Paizo time, uh, Pacific time. Uh, for tomorrow's one and as you can see we have a packed schedule full of awesomeness but today is not over um we've got more of this to go for a few more minutes and then after that make sure that you stick around for some fantastic content to be continued thank you all. we have a broader question that i like from jay bowman uh, twelve thousand. As a designer, can you name one aspect of second edition that is working exactly as you hoped and one that you think still needs something more to hit its sweet spot? Oh, yeah. So the three action economy is like, woo, it is hitting the nail on the head. And we have to stop you because we put a a no direction rule that we're no longer allowed to reference that because, of course, it is objectively awesome. Oh, all right. right. (laughs) You can mention it because it's the low hanging fruit. Just don't exclusively say it's the action economy because it's super Um, awesome. So I, I will I will think of another awesome one that I'm uh, that I'm pretty excited about. Um, the the one that I think is um, in, in all honesty is is a little tricky is con- uh, counteracting. I think that's probably the rule that trips up most players and most GMs. Um, things that I think are awesome are uh, that you don't have this this Christmas tree of magic item slots anymore. You just get ten items and you don't have to think about it. <laughs> Oh, yes. I can reenact my parallax with magic rings on all the fingers. That's right. (laughs) You want all rings? You do you. (laughs) You're going for some deep cut comic and toy references today, Param. I like it. So uh, we are, let's see, we can can get in a couple more. We're going to jump all around because people have been asking one thing and then we change the subject. So um, just to confirm, clockwork creatures, are they no longer constructs? Uh, They are constructs. Uh, okay. in, in first edition, we'd say they're a subtype. Um, in, in second edition, they're, they're constructs with the clockwork trait. Oh, it's the trait system. I, yeah. I, I find that that has helped me a lot as a GM, but I had to get used to really paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no offense, Smith, but like usually the traits were like, but in second edition, like the least important rules wise stuff until they got had a gotcha. And that has so shifted with second edition. Yeah. Uh, can troops be used in pitch battle? And what rules supplement oh, troops in battle scenario? What what uh, rules supplement troops in battle scenarios? Yeah, uh, so um, I'm actually going to point somewhere else. Um, the uh, we are we're um, releasing some rules for the Kingmaker um, Adventure Path in Second Edition, um, a joint project with Legendary Games. Mm, that's mm-hmm. going to have your kingdom building and your your mass battle rules. So that's going to be a better resource, I think, than trying to model a, a two armies with with troops. Yeah, and the there will be infinitely more pen potential when you get into the Kingmaker section, I'm sure. Uh, Nox Vox Cides mm-hmm. wants to know, will there be wild magic in Secrets of Magic? Uh, that's a great question to ask Logan Bonner on Saturday during that panel. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. deflect it. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of uh, if you have some more uh some more questions or you want to you know listen to any of the panels you missed uh for any convention coverage uh of course uh, you'll see a lot of this here on the official Pazo Twitch page after the fact in the vods and I know that a lot of these panels will show up on the Twitch uh 
YouTube page. These behind the panels segments, they're going to be exclusive over onto our YouTube page. And of course, all the audio in the podcast uh, for this convention coverage um, and basically almost every single convention coverage and the vast majority of panels for the past, you know, eight to 10 years, you can find on nodirectionpodcast.com where we have been faithfully uh, documenting and journalizing Pazzo's journey to uh, fame and awesomeness uh, since the beginning. So I definitely, if you, if you want to catch any of the convention coverage now, or, you know, when it's all done after roll for combat calls it a day, and you want some more, you can go back and listen to cons before both PazoCon from just a year ago, or one of my favorite things to do from time to time is just go way back in time and listen to like those adventure panels or anti Lisa story hours from like year two or three of Paizo and, and, and then giggle about how those mad speculations have evolved have to these days. Out. Woo. <laughs> uh, so I just want to throw out a reminder that we've got a, a really rad event coming um, at noon tomorrow. That's noon Eastern. So 9 a.m. Pacific um, is, uh, hang on, I'm being told tomorrow and Saturday. Uh, it's on Saturday. Um, the uh, they're, We're announcing a really, really cool set of products that we're partnering with Beetle and Grimm for, mm-hmm. um, for some really deluxe, fantastic uh, character folio books um, that oh. are uh, that are going to be totally, totally awesome. Uh, I haven't seen previews yet. I've only like I've been hearing about them and I'm I'm excited to see what we're what we're rolling out. We showed off some previews earlier on on the twit on the cast, and this is these like leather bound, foil bound, embossed guides yeah, for just... super character sheets. Yeah, they're just amazing. Oh. And and if you haven't seen what Beetle and Grim does for other other, other groups, um, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely check out their work. They make amazing things, mm-hmm. and we're really really excited to be partnering with them to make these resources for Pathfinder. And my wallet weeps, but it's uh, but this is so tempting. <laughs> they're tears of joy. The other thing my wallet was crying about is that gigantic goblin. goblin! (laughs) Oh my gosh. We're lobbying to get several of them through our office once we have an office again. (laughs) For now, get it at home and then it really feels like the office. Um, (laughs) Uh, We got time for a couple more questions. Because Thrillo wants to know if the Yurthak is going to be in Bestiary 3. Uh, Y-R-T-H-A-K. Um... I feel like I'm in a spelling bee all of a sudden. Uh, it is. It is not. Um, we had to make some really hard calls about what what was able to get in and what was what we were going to have to uh, leave on the table for future projects. And that was that was one that's gonna that's gonna have to hang out for a while. As a page, Lisa, I attempted to deceive you. Nobody in chat asked that. That was my question. Was it really? Uh, <laughs> I really like the attack. <laughs> I mean, you're in chat. That counts, I guess. Uh, yeah, page uh, count has been has been decided. So it's uh, it's going to be the same size as Bestiary Two. I think that's three hundred and twenty-two pages or something like that. A beefy boy. Yep. One winged angel one hundred and one wants to know: any chance we see Rage Profits in the foreseeable future? Rage Profits is uh, is something people are talking about, um, and it's it, it is uh, only peripherally on my radar. So I think it's happening somewhere, but I don't know where. Stay tuned for more information. <laughs> So we've got a couple of minutes left. Is there anything going on at Gen Con that you're particularly excited about? Oh man, Gen Con is so very odd this year. Um, I think I am uh, excited to get to experience Gen Con in a way that lets me see more of it 
than I usually would, because um, as rad as it is to hang out on the you know purple and black floor and, and talk to fans about books all day, um, it, it's working Gen Con means you don't actually get to see much of Gen Con. And here I get to see a lot of the other panels, um, see what um, you know what my colleagues are working on, but also what um, other companies are working on, and get out there and uh, see and maybe actually play some games. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, the uh, the PFS and the organized play. I always say PFS, but it's like Starfinder and Adventure Card Guild and, and all sorts game, of yep. fun stuff. The organized play team has already been like super pumped and planned out for this. There are games going on, uh, hundreds of games already going on. And if you want to get into a game, they will set you up. So go check out what's being done there. There's an OP Discord. And I also have some uh, word from Paizo here. Uh, that Beetle and Grimms, it is spelled with a D, not a T, B-E-A-D-L-E and Grimms. Um, they're going to have an announcement seminar on Saturday at noon Eastern time to go over a lot of the details of the stuff and, and make some announcements on that, that project. And for anyone that missed the Paizo 2020 and Beyond panel, if you are curious about just a preview of what Beetle and Grimms is offering, you can go back and watch that because there is some not detailed like nobody flips through the book but there's definitely some images that are very okay. cool to check out yeah, there are some pages themselves that have images as well as the covers and stuff and it looks really there's a there's a death certificate like that looks like a death certificate when your character eats it inevitably <laughs> yeah. bites the dust yes oh. now see here's the question though if you then were to get uh resurrected do you can you have multiple death certificates do you collect them <laughs> well it became a tradition to rip up character sheets when you die and then tape them back together if that got undone at least in, in my groups i wonder if you rip the death certificate up oh when you get resurrected hmm <laughs> symbolic or, or or like void in in the in, in the state of absalom <laughs> or like phoresma's court's like nah toss this one out it was really when interesting you get resurrected do you get a new birth certificate do ooh, or is there like a rebirth certificate i i guarantee you that there 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 absolutely are some psychopomps that keep track of that well it oh, was I'm revealed sure. that phrasma knows when a when a death isn't going to stick and there's yeah, like she basically, sort of like puts you in a holding pen yeah there's a little waiting room actually for one of my <laughs> players who who died and we didn't expect them to come back i did a little role-playing scene where he was just stuck in like like a, a dentist's waiting room with like chairs and just other adventurers sitting there watching watching a little hologram ball of what their parties were up to in the, in the oh. meantime and just like oh, wow. uh, you want to read a a, a a pathfinder chronicle while we wait and he was stuck in there for like a year because that's how long it took him to get him back <laughs> Uh, well, uh, we all will. We have to go get ready for the next panel, everyone. You Thank bet. you all so much for joining us. Do oh. stick around. Uh, there's going to be some more fantastic, amazing content that you will want to pay attention to because we'll be right back with the adventure panel where they're going to be talking about lots and lots of stuff for your characters to get into trouble and killed by very soon and then after that of course will be roll for combats live play where they are going to be doing tales from the black lodge with uh paizo and no direction's own luis loza that will also be a fun one to uh to commit to and we will be here all weekend with more content for the duration of gen con uh, we have a packed schedule and we look forward to chatting with you and seeing you all here for the duration bye everybody Thanks, Liz. You bet.
the No Direction Network's PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage was made possible by the KDCon team, consisting of Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param, Ryan Costello, Alexander Agunas, Monica Marlowe, Vanessa Hoskins, Dustin Knight, and Andrew Sturtevant. For more great Pathfinder, Starfinder, and other RPG news, reviews, podcasts, and blogs, check out nodirectionpodcast.com.